the shadow of mockery. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching, and the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him reading, This is the king of the Jews. I love the way the Gospels interweave the interlocking stories of Peter and Judas in the last hours of Jesus' life. It's like a clever television show or a film where first you're with Peter and then you're with Judas, then you cut back to Peter and then you're with Judas. And both of these friends of Jesus, of course, committed crimes beyond forgiveness. As for Judas Iscariot, he was a passionate zealot who loved the land of Judah more than life itself. He was a Zionist to end all Zionists. He expected Jesus to defeat and expel the hated Roman occupiers, but that's not why Jesus has come, and so Jesus disappoints Judas. And finally, Judas just snaps. He feels betrayed, so he's going to betray in return, and he sells his friend for 30 lousy pieces of silver, $6,000 in today's valuations. Would you sell your friend for $6,000? What can you buy with $6,000 today? Ten-year-old Jeep? But Peter's almost as bad, right? Maybe not quite, but almost. First in the upper room, Peter promises that he will be brave and true to Jesus till the end, no matter what. Let them beat me to a pulp, says Peter. I'm not afraid. I will stay with you forever. I will never leave your side. Peter reminds me of the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz, fearless, intrepid, and gallant until such time as his courage is called into the fray. Of course, at least he follows to the kangaroo court where Jesus will be frauded into conviction. But outside the court, warming his hands by the fire, a cleaning lady comes up to him and notices his accent. You were one of them, weren't you? Because you see, Galilee is as far from sophisticated Jerusalem as Philadelphia is from Peachtree Avenue in Atlanta. That blunt Philadelphia accent doesn't exactly blend with all these genteel southern drawls. Peter's nickname, after all, is Rocky. And that's what Peter sounds like to those sophisticated people in Jerusalem. Rocky. Yo, Adrian. Peter tells the cleaning lady she's crazy, and this happens twice more. And just then, in the gray light of a Good Friday dawn, a cock crows, and Peter goes out to weep bitterly. Have you ever betrayed a friend? At work, a friend with an alarmingly concrete sense of integrity calls you to make a stand against some, some injustice that's intolerable, and you promise to stand with her all the way to the unemployment line because you think it'll never come to that. But then it does, 
and then you decide that your job is more important than either your integrity or your friendship? Have you ever tried to inflate your own importance by slandering someone else's reputation? Have you ever passed on a shabby but unconfirmed rumor about someone you profess to love? When you read the stories of Peter and Judas, do you see their, yourself there reflected, at least occasionally? There's a fearful symmetry in the gospel accounts of the stories of Judas and Peter, these two friends who committed crimes beyond forgiveness. Did you notice that at the end of the story, both of them rushed into a borrowed grave? Judas is so disappointed in himself that he puts a rope around his neck and leaps out into thin air and they throw his body into a borrowed grave, Luke tells us. And Peter, too, ends the story in a borrowed grave. But that borrowed grave is the one that Jesus borrowed and it's empty. Peter's there on Easter Sunday morning. Peter just keeps on going. In God's grace, there's always another chance. And you know the difference between Judas and Peter? We don't call Peter a saint and Judas a villain because one of them is better than the other. It's just that Peter stuck around to receive the Lord's forgiveness. He did not allow his sin to overwhelm him. And he was the first one inside that empty tomb. And he's the rock on which the church is founded. Peter doesn't take himself quite as seriously as Judas does. In many ways, Judas is the larger, more noble character. He keeps company with all those noble, tragic heroes from the stage and in literature throughout the ages. He has the stature of Oedipus and Hamlet and Lear. He will face with equanimity the consequences of his own actions. He will not shirk his duty. He's sophisticated and has dignity. He's as wise as a serpent, whereas Peter comes off as dumb as an Irish setter. He could get lost at the end of a leash, but he never quits. He waits around to see what might happen, and what happens is an empty grave. What happens is another chance. What happens is resurrection. What happens is Easter. Do you know that it was Victor Hugo who single-handedly rescued Notre Dame Cathedral from disrepair and neglect? After the French Revolution unseated the royals from their thrones and emptied the heavens of any gods, that ancient pile of gigantic stones, already 600 years old, was scorned as the temple of superstition and unreason. And so the revolutionaries came in and vandalized most of its sacred iconography. And then in 1831, Victor Hugo publishes The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Parisians fell so in love with Quasimodo that they fell back in love with the beating heart and soul of their city. But it's another Victor Hugo novel that I'm thinking of tonight. Who has read the book or seen the play or seen one of the many filmed versions of Les Miserables? Yeah. A few of you. Have you ever thought of the novel's protagonist, Valjean, and antagonist, Javert, as a retelling of the Peter and the Judas story? 
Both Valjean and Javert have done horrible things in their lives, but their respective responses to their error are diametrically opposed. The beginning of the story, Valjean does an evil and kindness and hates himself for it. And in the musical, he sings, I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in, and I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from this world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Another story must begin, he says. He starts over. He reinvents himself. And Jean Valjean ends up becoming one of the most beautiful heroes in the history of page and stage and screen. He redeems the lives of almost everyone around him in his little world. And at the end of the story, Javert wants to escape from the world of Jean Valjean as well. When Valjean shows him an unmerited grace and frees him from bondage and death, Javert cannot live in this world of grace and broken rules. His rectitude is too, too scrupulous. And near the end he sings an aria that mirrors Valjean's. I am reaching, but I fall, and the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can go. There is no way to go on. And then famously, he hurls himself into the river Seine. It's Peter and Judas, redux. As far as God is concerned, there are no crimes beyond forgiveness and life always go on, goes on if we stick around after fail, failure, forgiveness. After defeat, another chance. After the cross, the open tomb. After death comes life. <laughs>